Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back to Seven Heads, Ten Horns. This week, the history of Halloween. Jack-o'-lanterns, dressing up in costumes, bobbing for apples, trick-or-treating. Where do Halloween traditions come from? Like many holidays that began as religious celebrations, Halloween has become primarily an economic activity, buying costumes from online retailers, big box stores, or even your local pharmacy. Watching scary movies, buying candy for trick-or-treaters or just for yourself. This year, perhaps driven by the pandemic, candy sales in the months approaching Halloween were up double digits. But Where and how did Halloween originate? Is it a Christian holiday, linked to the feasts of all souls and all saints? Or is it mainly from the Celtic celebration of Samhain? Competing claims on the origins of Halloween are at the center of debates in both neo-pagan and evangelical Christian communities about whether they should celebrate Halloween and whether it constitutes devil worship. On the neo-pagan side, some folks question very much like Christians discussing Christmas, whether Samhain has become too secularized. So what light can historical sources shed on these questions? Experts disagree on how and to what extent particular parts of Halloween celebrations derive from Celtic or Christian sources. On the Celtic side, there is a holiday called Samhain, and Samhain just means summer's end, It falls between the autumn equinox and the winter solstice. On the Celtic calendar, a day begins and ends at sunset. So the celebration begins on the evening of October 31st and ends on the evening of November 1st. Samhain takes place at a liminal moment, marking the transition of seasons in which the human and the divine realms are temporarily more connected. Forces of darkness and decay were said to be emanating from the she which were earthen mounds or barrows in the Irish countryside during this time. Samhain was considered a propitious time for Druids, the Celtic priests, to make prophecies. Druids would build sacred bonfires to offer sacrifices of the harvest and of animals to the gods in hopes of securing prosperity and regenerative energy for the harsh winter months. Young people wanted to know who it was they would marry and performed various divination rituals involving nuts or apples to discern their matrimonial fates. Were the Celts engaged in human sacrifice at Samhain in addition to animal and harvest sacrifices? The evidence is not entirely clear. Romans, including Julius Caesar, as well as early Christians writing on the subject, certainly accused the Celtic Druids of human sacrifice. However, it is also clear that they had polemical reasons for doing so. Can we dismiss these claims outright? Not entirely. Archaeological evidence from the Roman and pre-Roman eras points to human sacrifice by peoples in present-day Ireland and Northern Britain, although not necessarily by Druids, and we can never be sure if it was indeed for religious practices. The early Irish sagas also do not mention human sacrifice, but these were never intended as histories in the modern sense and they tell us more about storytelling and the history of literature and ideas than they do about ritual practices. 
Many Halloween traditions can be traced to medieval or early modern Christian roots. Although it is possible that in formerly Celtic regions, these traditions were adapted from earlier practices. Since no written records of Druid ritual survive, it is hard to say whether our practice was invented by Christians or merely adapted. What we can say is that the choice of November 1st for All Saints Day, the Christian holiday, was not chosen deliberately to Christianize Samhain, because All Saints Day, the Christian holiday, was first celebrated on November 1st in England and Germany, whereas in Ireland it was celebrated in April, before it was later moved to November 1st. That said, it is certainly the case that after that point, some Samhain traditions blended with the new Christian festival in Ireland. Pope Gregory III was the one who established All Saints Day as November 1st, expanding on an earlier Christian feast in honor of just the martyrs, those who had died for the faith. All Saints Day, by contrast, also included those recognized by the church as saints or holy persons, usually by popular acclamation, although later that developed into a highly formalized process controlled by the Vatican. All Souls Day was added in the 11th century as the day after All Saints Day, and celebrated not just the saints, but also those who had died, particularly in the past year. All Souls Day featured prayers for the dead to hasten their souls through purgatory and on to paradise, and churches would ring their bells for these souls in transition. Purgatory, by the way, was this process that was later developed into a doctrine of a place in which people who died would go and would have their sins burned off. They would be cleansed and purified in some sort of painful process, which would prepare them for entering heaven. Taken together, All Saints Day and All Souls Day, as well as the night before All Saints Day, a three-day span known as Hallowtide, were dedicated to remembering those who had died, saints, martyrs, as well as regular people, and gave Christians a chance to reflect on the afterlife. The night before All Saints Day, or All Hallows Day, was known as All Hallows Eve, which eventually became Halloween. In England, bonfires were lit in churchyards to ward off evil spirits, and candles lit up churches for the processions involved in each of the holidays. All Souls Day celebrations, like Samhain, included bonfires for warding off evil spirits. Trick-or-treating might come from a Christian practice known as souling. The poor, often children, went begging from door to door and received soul cakes, specially prepared pastries, in exchange for their prayers for the dead. Here's a cake. Pray for my father who died this year, etc. Soulers lit their path armed with lanterns made from hollowed-out rutabagas with candles inside. Trick-or-treating and jack-o'-lanterns probably derived from these practices. This time of year also marked the beginning of the season of masking, mummery, and guising, which lasted through the December 28th Feast of Fools, or Feast of the Holy Innocents. Merry revelers would go about in costumes, dressed as authority figures such as bishops or mayors, drinking and carousing and demanding tributes from villagers. 
Anyone who refused to play along and give them a little money to fund their partying would be subject to mockery and hazing. Despite the carnivalesque quality of the season, All Souls was also a sober religious affair for remembering and honoring the dead. A French belief held that the dead would rise from their graves on Halloween for a kind of carnival of ghosts, the danse macabre, and this would be enacted by the living in masked balls of the aristocrats, as well as more modest village celebrations. The Protestants did away with All Souls Day because it centered around prayers for the dead who were in purgatory. Since in the Protestant view, there was no scriptural basis for the doctrine of purgatory, they nixed the idea. If it wasn't in the Bible for these guys, it just wasn't a thing. In England, after the initial back and forth between more reform-minded or Catholic monarchs, it was Queen Elizabeth I who established the lasting tradition that All Saints' Day would continue to be celebrated in England, while All Souls' Day would be dropped from the liturgical calendar. Predictably, the popular celebration of All Souls' Day traditions continued in spite of the lack of official standing, especially bonfires and the practice of souling. Other popular traditions that survived the Reformation were the belief that witches, ghosts, and the like were about in this time of year, and it was considered a good time to try to divine who among your neighbors might die, or who you might marry, by various divination rituals. These divination practices most likely derived from earlier Samhain counterparts. In 17th century England, Guy Fawkes Night began to eclipse the importance of some of these traditions. A plot by Guy Fawkes and other Catholic radicals to destroy Parliament with explosives was exposed, and celebrations commemorated the endurance of liberty from the Catholic menace and from absolutist rule. Interestingly, Guy Fawkes Night, the 5th of November, was celebrated by some of the same elements of All Souls Day, as well as Samhain before it, most notably by large community bonfires. It was a rather rowdy affair, which included revelry and some troublemaking for anyone who refused to contribute to the cause for procuring fuel for the bonfire. Like other Protestant groups, the Puritan colonists in America, as well as their counterparts in England, were deeply opposed to fun of any kind. Okay, maybe not quite, but they definitely objected to holidays and the revelry of early modern celebrations, not just of Halloween, but of nominally religious holidays that even 21st century evangelicals celebrate, like Christmas and Easter, on the grounds that they were unscriptural. And so it wasn't until the 19th century when waves of Irish immigrants brought their Halloween traditions with them as they crossed the Atlantic to start new lives in America. And so it wasn't until the 19th century when waves of Irish immigrants brought their traditions with them as they sailed the Atlantic to start new lives in America that Halloween also jumped the pond. As we have seen, the observance of Halloween or Hallow's Tide predominated in Ireland and in the Scottish Highlands, while in Great Britain, Guy Fawkes Day and the bonfire traditions became the go-to holidays for closing out the harvest and beginning the long wait through winter. This means that the 13 colonies and the provinces of Canada as colonies of Great Britain, did not observe Halloween in the first centuries of their existence. In Massachusetts, the Puritan divine Cotton Mather explained that every holiday ending in mass 
was popish and thus laden with pagan baggage, inauthentically Christian. And he included Christmas in this list of popish pagan mass holidays. To the south, as German immigrants settled in Pennsylvania, they actually practiced traditions that made Christmas look a lot like what we associate with Halloween in terms of sinister costumes and frightening little children. The Germans of the Palatinate or the Faults brought with them the Belsnickel or the Peltnicholas, a fearsome version of Saint Nick whose long dragonish tongue hung low as he prowled for naughty children whom he rewarded with a beating. And for the rest, treats. Just combine vigilantism, a costume from out of a haunted hayride, and you're set for the Yuletide among the Pennsylvania Dutch. But by 1890, there were millions of Irish immigrants in North America, and they brought Halloween with them. Because of the urban concentration of these communities on the East Coast, the holiday started to drift loose from the purposes it served back in the villages of rural Ireland. No longer was it a time for matchmaking and arranged courtship rituals. In the teeming city of the East Coast, young people entered into the labor market and earned their own money, and thus had something to spend for themselves on long nights of Saturnalian festivities. And no longer were the villagers carving lanterns and rutabagas for the lost souls drifting in the wind. Now they carved faces into pumpkins, adapting to the crops on offer in North America. Philadelphia, with its ample Irish population, represented something of a cultural center for Halloween observance. Rather than featuring earnest attempts at divination, Halloween in this radically new context was a scene of ethnic self-parody. Its customs differed depending on social class, but even in more decorous settings, it represented an inversion of hierarchies. And one amazing thing about Halloween, as it descended upon the U.S., was that it marked ethnic belonging without being freighted with sectarian tensions. It was not a flashpoint between Ulster Protestants and Roman Catholics. This foreshadows the way Halloween would become open to a wide variety of ethnic groups and classes in the United States. Within a few decades of first being observed in the USA, it became a fixture on the social calendars of urban elites, being an occasion for galas and balls. It marked the start of the winter season. It also became a part of the rites of passage for incoming university students, since the collegiate academic year used to begin in the USA in October, as it still does in Europe. Medical students were known to play pranks with cadavers liberated from the dissection tables. Even with these middle-class and elite adaptations, Halloween remained a rowdy holiday for young people who found themselves running in the streets rather than dancing at the high society balls. There were macabre elements of the holiday, stories of fairies, witches, and bogies, or ghosts, as in the poetry of Robert Burns, the voice of 18th century Scottish nationalism. But as far as I can tell, the Gothic wasn't the definitive hallmark of the holiday until later, and so the devil and his secular personas were not given their due for the harvest season. The emphasis seems to have been instead on pranks and versions of social norms which sometimes bordered on outright violence. The pranks could turn ugly with outhouses toppled and trolley tracks greased, scuffles with the police. All Hallow's Eve wasn't for little kids. It was for the youth, young men, with all the impulse control and clear judgment young men display when they're up late at night imbibing. 
the costuming was linked to the mumming tradition for New Year's that was a part of Irish immigrant culture, especially in Philadelphia. This got adapted for the ruckus of Halloween. Now, city residents had to worry less about lost souls wandering onto their front stoops and more about packs of teenagers or university students occupying public spaces in mass. And this is an important point. Prior to the 19th century, holidays and national events in the United States, such as Election Day, were celebrated in public and they were very lively affairs. Lots of merrymaking, conviviality, and also a fair deal of disorder. By the time Halloween came onto the scene, these holidays had been civilized and their observance was limited, especially for middle-class households, to the domestic sphere. Not so with Hallow's Tide. It retained the festive but also confrontational side of public holidays in the United States from the 18th and 19th centuries. Its aesthetic also echoed the popular forms of entertainment from the turn of the century. As one historian writes, costumers were more likely to resemble Charlie Chaplin and Mae West than the Wolfman. What really surprised me as a millennial raised on the idea that gothic horror, scary movies, and mass sugar consumption all hang together in a constellation as natural as those orbiting the starry heavens, was the fact that horror classics like Todd Browning's Dracula did not even premiere remotely close to Halloween, Valentine's Day in Dracula's case. It takes until the 1960s and 70s for the link between horror films and Mischief Night to solidify as television stations start running monster movie marathons from old films from the Universal Studios era. One of the real breakthroughs in the horror Halloween connection was the airing of Orson Welles' 1938 production of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. This radio production mimicked news reporting, breaking news headline announcements, weather reports, and other typical radio formats of the time. The simulacrum was so effective that it created an outright panic. Reportedly, many listeners in the United States really thought that the Martians had touched down and were looking to hunt them down and incinerate them with laser beams. Or at least this is the legend that has grown up around Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. Some controversy exists about how extensive the panic was. I remember as a kid listening to this on an audio cassette and being assured by my relatives that this production was so terrifying that it actually led people to commit suicide. I would like to believe that's just a legend, but you know. Whatever the case may be, it points to a growing awareness that the holiday was not only good for selling candy, party decorations, booze, but also mass media. This self-awareness on the part of media producers reaches its zenith with the 1978 release of John Carpenter's Halloween, the prototype of all slasher films. And linking back to the discussion that Travis and I had last week about psychological horror versus the demonic, Michael Myers is at once simply a mentally ill person who stabs people, but also, in the words of his own therapist, the embodiment of pure evil. Talk about selling yourself short. I didn't see the whole embodiment of pure evil listed in the DSM-5. Myers' rampage through the suburban town of Haddonfield takes place on Halloween in the midst of trick-or-treating and typical teenage antics. The blank face of the masked killer, sort of sickeningly pale, is actually a Captain Kirk mask that was circulating the Halloween costume markets of the 1970s. This sort of 
expresses really nicely the way in which slasher films mark a turning point of sorts. The face of the hero from the most optimistic form of science fiction there is gets claimed by the monster of a dark fantasy film. As if to say, the cultural fantasies and narratives of post-war USA are all just window dressing to a psychotic, malevolent, destructive force. Sporting his Captain Kirk mask, Michael Myers is able to blend into the background of Halloween night's festivities. Let's go to trick-or-treating for just a second. By mid-century, the holiday had mostly been disciplined and rendered docile, along with the rest of the holidays we celebrate. Instead of making mischief, children appear at doorsteps in their cute costumes and candy bags. The threat of the trick in trick-or-treat has atrophied into a mere formulaic utterance. By the late 60s and through the early 90s, Halloween got dangerous again, nevertheless. Or at least this was the popularly held view. And there was something to back it up. For example, there's an infamous case of a man convicted of poisoning his own children with some chemically laced pixie sticks. The urban legend of razor blades sewn into candy apples proliferated. Serial killers and sexual predators had entered the imagination of the U.S. population. Not that this wasn't a real phenomenon, but it was also a boon to media sales. The holiday had been infantilized, but the innocent children who participated in it were under attack. Around the same time, anxieties about the spread and influence of satanic cults became another hot-selling news item. And here we really get the tie-in between Halloween and the topic of this pod. In 1968, the Manson family murders took place, and the satanic Bible of Anton Sandor LaVey came out. The Church of Satan became a real-life institution in California, but the satanic rituals that were really seizing the imaginations of the nation were being represented by writers and evangelical media personalities who described themselves as survivors of satanic sexual abuse, like Mike Warnka and Michelle Smith. These figures laid out their vision of a nation under siege from a powerful, sinister network of child-abusing Satanists who performed elaborate, sadistic sex rituals. What are we to make of these claims, and why do they sound so much like the QAnon conspiracy theory that has taken hold of the conservative Republican base today? It seems like originality is grossly overrated when it comes to popularity, these theories really took off at a moment when most American families were reckoning with the insufficiency of a single income stream model. For married couples with children, daycare was becoming necessary to generate the money they needed to pay their bills. At the same time, conservative Christian discourses valorized the stay-at-home mother and regarded group care arrangements with suspicion. And thus it was no mere coincidence when daycare workers became the target of Satanist child abuse sex cult paranoia. And this paranoia impacted people's lives. Police departments started undergoing trainings to help them identify and profile ritualistic criminal activity, as the Chicago PD termed it. You can watch the training videos online, one of which links Satanism to dangerous cruising homosexuals, of course. Daytime television personalities like Oprah and Geraldo started airing specials on the dangers of satanic cults for children's safety. This glommed together with anxieties about music and gaming culture, in particular heavy metal and Dungeons and Dragons. At the same time, conservative evangelical and Pentecostal Christians were developing discourses and practices around what they thought of as spiritual warfare in the midst of culture wars around sexuality and gender roles. For many, Halloween was tainted by its pagan roots, 
just as the films that Hollywood produced were tainted. And following the earliest apologists of late antiquity, 20th century conservative Protestants regarded anything touched by pre-Christian religion as a tool of the devil. Surely it was the satanic culture of death that was pushing Dungeons and Dragons playing teens to commit suicide. Surely Black Sabbath and scores of other heavy metal bands were initiating teens into the cultic adoration of Baphomet. Surely slasher films were a true picture of the demonically perverted psyches of a sleaze-infested nation seduced by Hollywood. Halloween became off-limits. It was the night that devil worshippers yearned for. Samhain was being reclaimed, meanwhile, by Wiccans, the Church of Satan, and Celtic cultural groups looking to excavate the authentic pre-Christian practices of the holiday. For Wiccans who celebrate the fall equinox, Samhain is one of the eight spokes in the Celtic wheel of traditional holidays, or Sabbats, and its observances include bonfires and divination, which we're well familiar with at this point. Neo-pagan and New Age groups were busy rehabilitating the pre-Christian sources of this harvest festival at about the same time the Christian right was reacting to rumors of secret satanic churches dominating public life in the U.S. Some evangelical churches, while disavowing Halloween as a demonic corruption, attempted what one anthropologist calls cultural alchemy by taking elements of contemporary Halloween tradition and trying to use them to evangelize. They would build haunted house scare attractions, sort of similar to what you would find in an amusement park ride at uh, Halloween. And instead of frightening people with monsters that pop out and, and creepy things like that, the churches set up their hell houses or scare mares to show the graphic gore of what they considered as the fruit of sinful lifestyle choices. A body of someone racked in pain as they overdose, the wreckage and carnage of a DUI scene, a young person dying alone of AIDS, scenes of domestic violence that are somehow the result, it seems, of premarital sex, question mark. All of these are rendered in explicit detail to scare the visitors straight. But at the same time, they still partake of this idiom of the coming upon these like amazingly disgusting scenes that with things popping out and scaring you. At the end, there's a sermon which the anthropologist Susan Harding describes as a pitch to, quote, ask Jesus Christ into your heart and receive the gift of eternal life. Then you shuffle off. As a holiday destination, the Scare Mare is a popular attraction, and it's unclear whether COVID will slow all that down. Other churches, some of which are less driven by the culture wars, as the uh, fundamentalist Baptist church of Jerry Falwell that Harding is, is writing about, these churches invite congregants to a special Halloween service for which they are asked to dress as virtuous biblical characters or heroic exemplars from world history or national history in another bid to try to redeem Halloween of its satanic and commercialistic excesses. I'm basically inclined to see such practices as the scare mare or the, uh, the hero's costume event at, at the church as a grudging admission that Halloween, satanic or not, is a powerful abiding presence in U.S. culture. There's really so much more to talk about on this topic. Something I want to develop for next year, God willing, is the contrast between Halloween and Dia de los Muertos in Mexico and how the former functions as a part of U.S. cultural and capitalistic hegemony abroad and domestically. But for now, we'll pause here for the time being as we begin to prepare ourselves for a night when all the powers of evil are exalted. Whether that's Halloween or November 3rd remains to be seen. 
Okay, so Klaus, a couple questions for you. First, as we think about the devil and the relationship between the devil and Halloween, how did this whole association between Halloween, which seems to be about Samhain, which is, again, not about the devil, it's Celtic spirituality, it seems to be about All Souls Day, especially, which, again, isn't a devil-focused holiday. How do we think the devil got associated with Halloween in the first place? Yeah, and I think this actually ties into our next episode really well because it has to do with the uh, tendency in early church patristics or the church fathers, the church daddies, if you will, um, <laughs> the way that they maybe... I, I would want to start it with Justin Martyr, but it could be earlier. Um, the way that they associate everything that is not Christian with a demonic origin. So, in this, you know, this can extend from uh, what we call pagan classical Rome to the Aztec Empire, right? It's it's very convenient, right? Yeah, that's I think a feature of dualist universes. If it isn't good, it's evil. If it's not God, it's the devil. It's very easy to start seeing the world through those glasses and especially seeing difference that way. Yeah, and it's interesting because Christians do develop a way of talking about things that are morally neutral uh, through this category of the adiaphoron. Even that gets tossed into the middle of a battle between good and evil in different circumstances. So yeah, I think you're right to point to a dualistic framework as the thing that really shifts these equinox harvest festivals into nights of black masses and devil worship and, and that sort of thing. And that rhetoric really seems to jar against the campaign of Christianization, of acculturation, of trying to use these holidays that are in place and attach them or freight them with Christian baggage. Those things seem to be intention to me. Yeah, no, I see that tension as well. I want to try out a little theory on you, Klaus, and that has to do with horror movies, which, again, if you haven't checked out our Halloween movie special, I highly recommend that you do so. That's a pretty fun episode. It's like, what are you doing with your life if you haven't, right? I mean, right, I mean, come on. Uh, so please check that out if you haven't. And here's my theory. So you have... In the 1970s, the 1980s, the rise of these horror movie villains. Think Michael Myers, for example. And when I look at the early modern period and the materials we've been looking at for part of this episode, I think that's a culture, that's a place in time. In England especially, we've talked about in Ireland, you have shared religious culture around Christianity. Yes, there were a couple of forms of Christianity, but there was a shared religious culture. And as part of that culture, you had Satan, you had the devil. And what I'm wondering is, as we think about the 20th century context and these horror films, we don't have a shared religious culture in the United States where these films are being created and produced. And so my question is, do these villains take the place in a kind of secularizing move of this ultimate symbol of evil that we saw in the early modern period in Ireland and England. Is there some correspondence there, do you think, or not? And then if there is some sort of relationship there, this kind of shared, imagined symbol of ultimate evil that's turned into a character, 
then what's the relationship between that and what you pointed to as well, which is this moment of satanic panic in the 1980s and this fear around the child molester, perhaps, I don't know, the child killer, the child poisoner, you know, those razor blades and the candy apples, this kind of a creature as our new depiction, our new shared cultural expression of ultimate evil. So what do you think about my kind of working theory here about comparing our early modern symbol of evil in Satan to what we see in this 20th century context? Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. I I think that the ways in which serial killers, and especially with people who we used to call sociopaths, they're called antisocial disorder, the idea that there can be human beings who are able to sort of manipulate emotional responses and who understand emotional responses at a cognitive level but can't empathize and then sort of use that knowledge against people. And yeah, I think that that source of fascination, I mean, Mindhunter just got canceled on Netflix, which I was really bummed about, which is a great series about the, the sort of behavioral studies unit in the FBI and, and its origins and the way they deal with serial killers. Oh, I didn't hear that that had been canceled. Oh, that's that really makes me sad. Yeah, it just got canceled. I know, I, I really liked it. I really thought it was good. I would be amazed if it wasn't picked up somehow, some, in some other shape or form. I'm sure Amazon's like licking their chops. I think that fascination really does create this link with a search for a face to put on the force of negativity in our lives. And I guess one well, my question is, Right, I think that that secularized thesis has some applicability. I also wonder about like why we keep thinking this way. If it's a secularization question, it could be seen to imply that there's a kind of st- almost static desire or like sort of a deep structural desire to personify evil in the way that the Christian tradition has set up. And I think for many people who are living through the summer and fall of 2020, thinking about systems and structures seems to be a lot more pertinent as a way to think about and and locate evil if we want to even hold on to that metaphysical moral concept. The link I see is that the stories and the myths are fascinating and they keep being fascinating. I think that's right. I would also point to the fact that as we sit here on a podcast, you know, obviously we're the most popular podcast we know, but a close second in terms of genres after history podcasts would be, I don't know if you've heard of them, but true crime podcasts. Some people are really into them. And their focus on serial killers in particular as single personalities, as, again, this idea, this notion of the sociopath or the psychopath, as having this irresistible pull. We need to know what happened. Our hearts palpitate. We are interested in in a, some sort of visceral way with that personification of evil. Again, it's different. It's not the same as Satan. I'm not saying it is. But it makes me wonder. And I love the point you made about social, structural forms of evil, again, if we're going to hold on to that, of social problems as systematic and how that might interact with or change our kind of Western, especially Western desire for personifying evil. I think it's a wait and see, but... Yeah, and we we'll, we talk about this next time with the demonization and the way certain womanist theologians think about the demonarchy as white supremacy, basically, and, and thinking about 
that sort of social dynamic and intersectional violence is naming it as demonic as a way of doing work theologically. So yeah, it, I think this question really ties into the project that we've been doing as a whole. But yeah, it, to me, it is a really good question whether the fascination with the uh, the grim visage of the uh, of the the evil villain, the enemy, is something that's holding us back. <laughs> you know, right. Something something that's really is is fascinating and counterproductive. Yeah. Not to mention politics, Klaus. I don't know why you suddenly got political on us all of a sudden. But. Yeah, I never get that way. Um, <laughs> yeah, I want to keep thinking about it. I I think simplistic secularization answers like, oh, Michael Myers is just the da- is just the devil, or Freddy Krueger is just the devil. It is like not quite satisfying, but there does seem to be linkages. And I want to keep thinking about like I think Gothic horror probably is a, is a major transition, you know, romantic and 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 Victorian Gothic horror is a sort of a transitional phase. But yeah, I I think that I don't have an easy answer to that. But I think uh, there's certainly there certainly seems to be some continuity happening. Yeah, there's a little bit of continuity I, that I want to explore at some point. Michael Myers, I'm thinking about his facelessness, the mask. You mean Captain Kirk? Captain Kirk's face? Sorry. <laughs> yes, Captain Kirk's face, if you will. Yeah. What does it mean to personify, if we're thinking persona in the Greek sense, when you have masks and are the sort of supernatural, uh, disembodied evil? So that's a question. But I think you're pointing to, hey, there's going to be something analytically in the differences. And that's, I think, where we want to lean into and say, what changed when this appeared in a place that seems seductively similar to what came before. Yeah, I want to keep an eye on that. And also that idea of looking into gothic horror as a transition moment. I'm quite excited about future episodes there. Okay, last thing I just wanted to talk about briefly, what's going on with some of our classic Halloween costumes, do you think? You've got the witch, and you've got the devil, and you've got the ghost. And it strikes me as these are, for many in an American 20th century context, when these are classic children's Halloween costumes, those are not scary, really. But they stand in for what used to be scary. They're a kind of haunting of our early modern past, perhaps, when the forces of the devil could be enacted by witches, could be summoned by witches. And so I just wonder what you think of that and what it means that we now see them just as little kids' costumes, as make-believe. And again, we're not talking about religious communities right now. We're talking about kind of secularized, generally somewhat secularized American culture. Yeah, I mean, the caveat's interesting because, right, it's like, well, is American nationalism a religion? And I would say, yeah, probably it is. It, you know, it's how you want to sort of play with the definitional terms. But but the question of like what's going on with, it's a bigger question is like this question of Halloween and infantilization and like how we, how we think about that. And these things that were really scary or really sinister threats to communities are now cute costumes or kind of ironic. I would include the vampire too. There are still pretty scary pieces of media being made about some of these characters, uh, especially witches. Witches, witches have had a big moment the last. Witches are having a moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We talked about Hereditary, which is scary as f. Um, 
yeah. yeah. Uh, I was always scared of Don't vampires. Don't watch that right before bed. Yeah, go watch Hereditary yeah. before you go to bed. I, I just watched Midsummer too. That was also that was also a good one. Um, but uh, that's more that's more just the scary white people sort of. It's like the white the sort of scary whiteness of that movie is really on display. Yeah, I think it really has a lot to do with this point. I think Lee Schmidt makes about how Halloween's been infantilized and how it it used to be mischief night, but it's really it used to be this night where trick or treat meant like the trick would could be really painful for the person <laughs> involved or they got their outhouse dumped out or something horrible like that. And that's, that's not really the case. I mean, I think there are pranks. I, I'm curious what, what Halloween's like in Oakland. I, I live in a college town and the university students can get pretty rowdy in, you know, when, it, when there isn't a global pandemic killing all the fun, not to mention many other things uh, and people. So there is some of the trick I think left in it. Um, but, uh, I think it, I think it's a lot to do with this infantilization of the holiday, and it's part of the the domestic the sort of the way it becomes domestic, like other holidays were. Um, this this history of holidays in the United States, where Election Day and Christmas and and New Year's and Fourth of July were these pretty rowdy public square drunken affairs. <laughs> They could still be drunken affairs, but it's very respectable and domestic now, and you know it's 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 hidden away. And I think uh, the the way it's infantilized is sort of a you could see it as a step in that direction. Maybe that's not the right read, but I, that's one way I would be tempted to see it. Yeah, I think the other direction that Halloween has gone. There's the infantilization side, and then there's the adult Halloween, which is like this excuse for you know sexy anything costume, right? We're just taking our clothes off at Halloween. Again, I don't know how to relate that particular kind of sexual energy and chaos back to its roots. I don't know that we necessarily need to, but there's bi- this bifurcation that I see in Halloween celebrations between the safely contained children's child safe holiday, but a little bit of that chaos gets to perhaps find its way in through our scary movies we're watching, through our sexy clown costume. Please tell me that that that's not a thing is it sexy clowns god i was god preserve us if it is um i yeah i'm not ready for it um please though message us on our instagram account if you do find a sexy clown i i'm now curious if you're listening to this in a sexy clown costume like really you might need to tell us but you probably you might need to tell a mental health professional too (laughs) (laughs) oh so good clowns are so terrifying anyway i think We've covered what we needed to cover, Klaus. Yeah. Thanks like, so much. Like, like, like always. Like always. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, so thanks for listening. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Board, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you. <laughs>